Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, presented by SeatGeek and Wix.com. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of April 15th, 2019. For some of you, this might be your second podcast of the day as it was a pretty busy weekend for us couch potatoes. No, we will not be recapping last night's episode of Game of Thrones. Instead, we'll recap the White Sox series win at the Bronx thanks to big weekends from Tim Anderson, Yoan Makata, and Aloy Jimenez hitting his first home runs of his career. We'll also preview the upcoming series against the Kansas City Royals, who shockingly just swept the Cleveland Indians. So both teams are playing well into the week. Speaking of playing well, Dylan Cease was outstanding again in his second start for the Charlotte Knights, in which Jim Margulis will recap all that happened down on the farm in the minor league report. You guys had a lot of questions this week, especially about Yomar Sanchez and Daniel Polka, which we will answer at the end of the show in P.O. Sox. Forbes released their MLB valuations this week, and boy, it's going to take a lot of money to buy the Chicago White Sox, as the franchise is now valued at $1.6 billion. Join us to provide insight on the White Sox valuation and the growth of Major League Baseball is senior editor of Forbes.com. It's Kurt Bodenhausen. And Kurt, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I guess it would be safe to assume that Major League Baseball is doing well for itself these days. Uh, We as fans and media at times are astonished on how much cash is flowing into the league. Are you seeing the same rapid growth financially for the league as we are? I don't know if I'd call it uh, rapid financial growth, but certainly steady. Uh, revenues were up 5% last year, w- which isn't tremendous growth. Uh, but, but with revenue up 5% and your biggest expense item being player costs flat, that's really good for profitability. So what are the big factors driving revenue for the league at the moment? Well, again, with, with baseball teams, uh, the stadium's still important. So people showing up, uh, but but increasingly uh, for baseball teams because you have 162 games, that local TV deal is huge, uh, and that's what really separates teams like the Yankees and Dodgers that have dramatically larger deals than anybody else uh, f- from other franchises. Um, you know, and then the, what what has been nice for Major League Baseball and and sets a floor uh, is the central money that gets funded to the teams equally. And so that's from the National 
international TV deals. That's from international business, league sponsorships. Uh, and, and that business has been doing very well. Uh, central revenues uh, have been growing uh, quite quickly, uh, and so that's really uh, increased the, that that bottom valuation, uh, which we have every team worth a billion dollars for the first time. Now, for the local TV deals you mentioned in Chicago, we're seeing the Cubs; they're going to have their own cable channel now yep. uh, with Sinclair. The White Sox are teaming up with the Bulls, Blackhawks, uh, to continue with NBC Sports Chicago in the city. Uh, do you see a trend? in Major League Baseball where teams do follow suit of the Yankees and just have their own regional sports network? I don't think so. I, I, the, we've seen uh, with smaller markets that the model does not work across all teams. Uh, we've seen some disastrous flameouts, uh, and we've seen it even, even in bigger markets uh, where it hasn't worked. So I, I don't think it's a fit where every team can go out on their own. Uh, and, you know, we saw the Cubs cutting away. I mean, the Cubs are in an unusual situation, uh, a very hardcore following. Uh, and I think it works for a team like the Cubs. But but to say that all 30 teams should go out and start their own RSN, when when Fox, in in many cases, which holds the the TV rights uh, for for most of the teams that don't have their own networks, is willing to pay substantial uh, a substantial rights fee to secure those uh, rights to 162 games. Now the White Sox. In 2015, they were valued at $975 million. So when Powerball was at a billion, Kurt, we felt like, hey, maybe we could buy the team, but no more. <laughs> uh, you know, four years later, $1.6 billion. What has been driving that growth in value for the White Sox franchise? Well, we've seen everybody up significantly, um, but 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 I think there's definitely a premium being placed on those big market teams. Uh, the stock market is up substantially over the past decade and has created incredible levels of wealth um, that, that is and that is often concentrated in those big markets, New York, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston. Uh, and we've seen a premium, uh, a higher premiums than ever uh, being paid for those big market teams, whether it's the Dodgers or Clippers. Uh, and, and so the White Sox, while they very much play second fiddle to the Cubs from a financial standpoint. Uh, I think if the White Sox were to come up um, on the market, there would be substantial interest uh, in that team. So if I'm reading you correctly, that for the White Sox, the most valuable part of the franchise is the fact that they're in Chicago. Sure. Uh, I mean, the market size is uh, probably more important in Major League Baseball than than any other sport. Um, so, so the market is tremendous. I mean, you look at the most valuable teams, uh, it's New York, Los Angeles, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, uh, and then, you know, the New York again. Um, so that, that market uh, is incredibly important because it drives sponsorship revenue in terms of pricing, uh, tickets uh, from an attendance standpoint and pricing. Um, and, and, you can, and you can get by, uh, it still generates significant revenue uh, from that, whether it's a local TV contract um, or high prices for, for sponsorships and suites, uh, even if your team is going through a rebuild and struggling and maybe don't have as many people coming to the park. Now, for the White Sox, when these numbers came out, Kurt, the one number that really caught our attention was operating income. What are the significant factors to operating income for baseball teams? Well, operating income really comes in, in, down to cash in versus cash out. Uh, so, we're, so we're looking at operating income is really revenue uh, minus expenses, but before you pay taxes, before you pay interest payments, uh, so, so before depreciation, amortization. Uh, so, so, so those, uh, that's the difference between an operating income and a net income uh, that gets reported to the IRS and. Um, so, so we're looking at uh, which teams are making the most money for, on a cash flow basis. And for the White Sox, really, it's, it's having a rock-bottom payroll uh, and still generating 
you know, decent revenue levels. Uh, they're, they're not generating revenue down, you know, in the same neighborhood as the Tampa Bay Rays uh, and, and the Oakland A's, uh, who also have payrolls down near the bottom. Uh, their revenues are significantly higher than those teams, and that leads to higher profits. Uh, baseball, a lot has been made about it this winter, where, where you have teams that are going for it, um, but that is a smaller and smaller um, number it seems like each year and then you've got those teams that are just cutting things down to the bone following the the, the Astros and Cubs model and going through a rebuild uh, and the White Sox are you know one, one of the prime examples of that and so those years when you're doing that before you ramp up the payroll again you're going to make a ton of money I mean the Astros when they cut their payroll down to you know down to the 20 something millions they were generating the same level of profits um, now you got to Wow. They've had the same. They've had you know tremendous success. Now they've got to start playing, uh, paying people, and so they've done the extensions with Altuve and Bregman, and um, brought in some high-priced guys like Verlander. Uh, so, so they're not as profitable as they were when they were back rebuilding, uh, and their payrolls, you know, is about to skyrocket even higher. Uh, so, so it's it's somewhat of a cyclical thing, and um, you know, it's it in some ways. While you might not be winning on the field, you're winning even more off the field. With that said, I think that's a big fear from a fan perspective. If a team is making so much profit, Kurt, is there financial benefit for increasing payroll and trying to win? Well, I, I think trying to win increasing payroll is going to drive revenue. You're going to have more people at the park. Uh, you're going to be able to charge more for sponsorships, more for suites. And, and the reality is that, that these sports uh, properties are typically valued based on revenue, not necessarily profitability. Because having a rock-bottom payroll isn't, isn't a long-term solution. That's not, drive, that's not increasing value. Uh, so typically, sports teams are valued on multiples of revenue opposed to multiples of profits, how traditional businesses uh, are valued. Um, so so it's, it's not an end game where you can just keep a rock bottom payroll forever. Uh, eventually then your, t- your long-term TV contract value is going to shrink because people are just going to completely stop watching games, even, even it being in a big market. Uh, nobody's going to come to the ballpark. Um, so I, I think winning on the field is what really drives revenue. Um, and, and so, and and the values really are based off of revenue much more so than profitability. Now, if you had to forecast what the next three years look like for Major League Baseball, as far as with revenue, uh, it, and I mentioned the three years because the CBA expires after the 2020, 2021 yeah. season, uh, are you still expecting this significant growth in, in 5% for the league year after year up to the 2021 yeah, I think we're going to see absolutely steady growth. Uh, we'll see renewals with the other. They already did the Fox renewal. Uh, the ESPN renewal will probably come in at a similar rate to Fox, something you know just below 50% uh, greater than the, than the last TV deal. Uh, we'll, we'll probably see TBS come in. You're seeing uh, other technology partners uh, be interested uh, in the sport. DAZONE uh, has a deal this year starting um, three-year deal at $100 million a year with the league. And I, I, again, the local TV uh, rights are still incredibly lucrative. What, the, what 10 years looks, what things look like in 10 years in terms of how people are uh, consuming content is anybody's guess. But for the near future, uh, those rights are still extremely valuable. You've got, I think, seven or eight teams uh, who are going to be starting new local TV contracts over the next two or three years. Uh, those are all going to be up significantly in value. Um, and so I think overall, uh, you will continue to see, uh, you know, probably mid single digit, uh, revenue growth. And, and then the question is what happens to payrolls? Uh, that, that's what we don't know yet. We've had two stagnant years of spending on players. Um, what, what the next three years will determine whether we have some sort of labor situation, uh, when the current CBA, uh, expires. Now, let's say if there was a labor situation, if the players decide to strike because they are looking at this growth and they're not receiving a bigger slice of pie, 
Uh, how detrimental would that be to the league's value if there was a strike in 2021? It's a problem. I mean, uh, whether it's Wall Street or companies that are looking to buy an asset, uncertainty is an issue. So as we get closer to that point, uh, there there will be, I think, some hesitation for people to um, buy in if it looks like we are headed for a strike. You saw what happened. The last strike that Major League Baseball had was devastating for the league. It took them a long time to climb out of that hole uh, because revenues just got killed. Um, so so uh, any sort of prolonged work stoppage uh, can have a, certainly a significant impact. Uh, most, in, most investors are getting in this for the long term, um, but, but you don't want to necessarily be buying into uh, you know, a, a situation where uh, you have a work stoppage um, because you, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. What what the ultimate uh, collective next collective bargain agreement looks like? Are our players going to end up negotiating a situation where they are going to have uh, guarantees where they're receiving a larger share of uh, revenue? Um, you know that cuts into your profits, and a- any uh, investor would would be concerned about that. Uh, but but it also creates opportunities. Uh, some of the, the some of the best uh, value investing w- were people that bought in right at the time of the last NBA uh, work stoppage, uh, and those values have skyrocketed. So so it can also provide an opportunity uh, if the values get depressed uh, during that uh, potential for a work stoppage. So if I win a billion dollars in Powerball, I should just set my sights on buying an NHL team then? Yeah, really tough. Every every NBA team, <laughs> every MLB team now worth a billion dollars. Uh, every NFL team's more worth a billion dollars for a long time now. So you, you got over uh, over a hundred sports franchises now worth a uh, billion dollars, which is which is staggering. It is, it is, and you can follow Kurt on Twitter. He's at K Bonhausen, and read his terrific work on Forbes about the business of sports. And Kurt, thank you so much for providing insight and for joining the show. Thanks for having me on. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device, whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. I want to thank Kurt Bonhausen from Forbes for joining the show again and great insight on the Chicago White Sox total financial value. On the field, the White Sox are 5-9 and nine now after winning two out of three against the New York Yankees. Joining me to recap the series is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. That was a satisfying weekend of baseball played by the White Sox. Yes, I've been to a lot of games at Yankee Stadium, a lot of White Sox losses at Yankee Stadium. I didn't go this year, but last two years. Actually, four and two uh, after being 10 and 30, I think the previous 11 years. <laughs> so, yeah, it's nice to see. It's always satisfying to see when a, a house of horrors turns into just kind of another place to play. And right now with the Yankees being so banged up, they are pretty much just another opponent right now. Yeah. And, you know, for the White Sox, that really helped him carry to the series win. And we start with Aloy Jimenez. He had his first two home runs of his Major League Baseball career. 
in Friday's win. They were not cheap ones either. I know in Yankee when you play at Yankee Stadium, you you do see some cheap home runs that go opposite field. Aaron Judge had one. Uh, Yonder Alonso was another one as well that it hit the top of the wall and went over. Uh, there are some cheap home runs at Yankee Stadium. Jimenez did not have any cheap home runs. His first one, dead center, more than 400 feet. And then his second one was an absolute moonshot. And I believe that Jimenez is starting to make some adjustments to the league, Jim, because in his last six games, Eloy's eight for 21. He's got two home runs. He has a double and six strikeouts to two walks. He just had his first multi-walk game on Sunday. His slash line now is 288 for his batting average. He's got an on-base percentage of 351, and he's slugging 423, which feels a little bit more normal. Do you feel like a hot streak is coming for Aloy soon? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, you know, Watching him hits the first couple of weeks, it seemed a uh, little bit like his timing was off. He was rolling over some pitches that were hittable. He's also seeing, of course, a lot of sliders and, and stuff out of the zone that he was learning to take. And, and I think during the, the um, uh, today's game, uh, watching him face Tanaka and all the sinkers and sliders and, and learning to lay off and, and getting fooled by some and, uh, you know, seeing the hands flinch a bit, but laying off as a start when, uh, you know, as, as he faced him more times through the order. And I think he's learning. And I think, you know, the two homers he hit are reflective of the kinds of homers he can hit. The first one, you know, just watching from the center field cam didn't look all that impressive off the bat looked like, you know, kind of a deep flyout, And then it just kept carrying and sailing and, and just nice majestic backspin laden shot that floated over the center field wall. And then the second one was more of the violent variety where, uh, you know, it's gone from, uh, uh, from the, the crack of the bat and you just wonder where it ends up and it ends up 445 feet away over the, uh, over the monument park. And yeah, that's pretty pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's been a while since we've seen, you know, the kind of satisfying violent homers and I'm all for that. Yeah. Sunday was a tough one though, because facing Masahiro Tanaka for the first time in your career cannot be easy, Jim, because of that split finger fastball that just drops off the shelf. And this strike zone I felt on Sunday was very random where some calls in the outside corner were given and then they would disappear the very next inning. Uh, but, you know, with him and as what I've been noticing as far as adjustments, he's starting to lay off the slider. And I think that will help him a great deal. And I think that will help fuel a little hot streak for him. And as against, again, the next 16 games are against the Royals, Tigers and Orioles. So as far as when it comes to pitching prowess, uh, it will get a little bit easier for Eloy Jimenez after facing like Tampa and the New York Yankees. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see if he can catch on fire soon and what that will look like. Now, speaking of a player still on fire to start the year, it's Tim Anderson. And what more can we say about his play lately? He had his first grand slam of his career on Sunday to power the team's win. Uh, Yes, he did have a throwing error, but he made a tremendous diving catch off of Aaron Judge line drive, which is incredibly dangerous. It was a 110 mile per hour exit velocity line drive that Anderson leaped to make a catch. It was a definitely web jeb. Uh, web gem and you know for Anderson on the season now Jim he's got three home runs 10 runs batted in he's got five steals Uh, he's hitting 429 with a 440 on base percentage and slugging 653 and after the updates on Monday morning on fan graphs and baseball reference I'm assuming that Tim Anderson might already be worth one win above replacement which last year he was worth two war for the entire season This is very exciting, and I hope it continues, but obviously regression does set in. But are there any signs of this torrid pace slowing down for Tim Anderson? Yeah, it's weird. When I was writing the post Sunday morning about the the trends underneath Carlos Rodon's performance uh, so far and underneath Yohan Moncada's performance, I also looked at Tim Anderson's. And there isn't a whole lot different on its face. You know, he's... he's, uh, chasing about the same he's whiffing about the same uh contact rates are about the same he's actually hitting more ground balls which is usually not great but uh it it seems like the victory is that he's doing it more against junk yeah it seems uh that uh they're content to see you know Pitchers are content to see if he's going to dive over the corner to chase stuff low and away or if he's going to get locked up or be way ahead of uh, um, 
curveballs, if he's cheating fastball or anything like that. And so far, he's not. He's he's been more competitive against those kind of pitches, uh, and he's really seeing the full array of junk that uh, the American League has to offer right now. So I, I think that's what's most encouraging. Even if he does slide into you know from from 429 now to 300s to the high 200s to you hopefully not much lower than say like 270 because uh, he should be able to you know get hits out of his legs and 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 with the kind of bat speed he has he should be able to you know make better contact more regularly this season um but yeah i just don't quite know you know there's no kind of uh i guess what you know, like mancada has where he's being more aggressive he, he solved the uh, problem of getting backed up against the ropes. Like Anderson hasn't done anything game changing like that. It's just more like he's getting more out of his approach that's already been in place for a couple of years now, and you know that's uh, possibly good, or it's uh, possibly just kind of a mm-hmm. a recipe to end up. Uh, I, I would think a little bit better than last year, but never quite breaking out uh, the way the sum of his physical tools could be, but I'm intrigued so far. I guess I'll put it that way. I won't count it out, um, but I just haven't seen anything yet that makes me think like, oh, he's uh, advanced to a whole another level as a hitter. Um, but if you say, if he does this for say the entire month uh, before the weather heats up, then I'm, yeah, I'm watching, I'm listening, I'm intrigued. And uh, I, I'm not quite buying it, but uh, I'm open to it. It's the power, I think, is still eye-opening to me. Even after all these years, Jim, that Grand Slam was an opposite field home run. And I know it's at Yankee Stadium, and maybe it was a little bit of a cheapie, but that's had some good exit velocity to it. And if he can continue that type of power where he can surprise some guys that sit on the outside corner with the fastball, especially at home at Guaranteed Rate Field where he could dump some in the visiting bullpen, uh, I think you know is I think 25 home runs is definitely within range. And for shortstops in Major League Baseball, there's not a lot of them that are going to hit 25 home runs this year. And if he if he's already worth one win above replacement, uh, I am very very curious to see and how this season plays out. I mean, I don't know how much longer Francisco Lindor has to wait or how long of a rehab he's going to have from his strained calf. Yeah, I think uh, he's starting his rehab now or or tomorrow. Okay, so. I mean, if he continues his pace throughout April, it's just crazy saying this. If Tim Anderson hits 400 in the month of April uh, and he can still be, you know, providing positive results and still be one of the top three shortstops come in May and June, we could be talking about an all-star gym. Yeah, and I liked his approach against Tanaka, you know, watching that at bat with the bases loaded and you know, Tanaka throws that sinker and slider and, and, and the splitter. And I'm just thinking, oh, great. Don't roll it over. Don't roll it over. And, right. Uh, he left the sinker up. And I think his approach was geared to try to let the ball travel deep and swing under it. Not uh, not top out and hit one back to the mound and start out, you know, one, two, three, double play or get a force out of the plate. Like it looked like he was looking to lift and waiting for the ball to, uh, um, you know, I, I guess, waiting to read the the break and 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 not uh, just top it and yeah it was just kind of a flick of the wrist to uh, just pop the barrel on it and put it into the first row in right field so yeah i think it was a little bit cheap but uh the approach i think deserved to be rewarded with an rbi one way or another four is great I, <laughs> uh, yeah it definitely is again that's the first grand slam in tim anderson's career the first grand slam hit by a chicago white Sox player in the Bronx since Frank Thomas did it back in 2003 off Roger Clemens. And they play the highlight that of that clip on NBC Sports Chicago. And let's just say there's a little bit of a difference in how far uh, each Grand Slam traveled <laughs> uh, as Frank Thomas hit the top of the foul pole in left field. Uh, just tremendous power. Just nice to reminisce on the big hurt and the types of home runs that he used to hit. Now, somebody else that's really smacking the ball around, and that's Yuan Makata. Makata for the series was four for eleven. He had a double. Uh, he got th- he almost had two doubles, but Aaron Judge caught him the second time on a line drive to the wall in right field. Uh, but Makata in these three games, Jim, he only struck out once, and for the season, Yuan Makata has a strikeout rate of 22.6%. Now, I say only because last year he was at 33%. And MLB.com's Mike uh, Petriello wrote about Mikata's better start is due to him making better contact with two strikes, and he still hasn't struck out looking on the season, which is great. 
and having one of the best hard hit rates in Major League Baseball. And on Sunday, Mikata's three base hits all registered 100-plus miles per hour exit velocity. And I think Mikata will always hit the ball hard, Jim, and generate silly exit velocity numbers. He currently ranks 12th in Major League Baseball in exit velocity average at 95.1 miles per hour. But the strikeout rate of 22%, is this sustainable for Mikata? If it is, that is awesome. Like I was thinking, yeah, rolling around in my head, uh, entering the season and what I expected from Mankata, I thought if he could get his strikeout rate to say like 28%, then that would be the level where he could start tapping into his offense and maybe he might be streaky and have some bad weeks or whatever, but it would be an above average infielder for the foreseeable future. And yeah, 22%, I think, is getting to the point where it would be all-star level. Uh, and we talked about this before, and I wrote about it uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, I, I was looking forward to seeing just exactly how it would manifest itself in the contact numbers. And you know, we talked about before comparing him, and and now it's kind of a weird comparison to make the further it goes in the season, but Larry Garcia, how Garcia went from being somebody who wasn't rosterable at all to somebody who could be like a decent um, you know, fourth outfielder utility guy at times just because he the contact rate inside the zone jumped uh you never expect a guy to you know do all that great swinging outside the zone but inside the zone if you're swinging at that you should be able to you know put the bat in the ball and last year his contact rate inside the zone was under 80 percent 79.8 now it's at 86.6 which is awesome uh yeah it it doesn't sound maybe like that dramatic of an increase but the fact that he's making contact alone, you think that if he, the, the contact overall is jumping, then the better contact is also increasing. The The barrel control uh, on hittable pitches seems so much better this year. And uh, and it, that's the kind of thing when you watch it and you, and you watch all his at-bats, it, that's what it seems like it's telling me is that uh, the, these pitches that he should be able to hit, he's hitting. He's con- he, he's getting them in front of the plate. He's attacking them. He's pulling them. He, he's, he's tapping into his power by lifting and pulling, uh, which I think you like to see for a guy who can hit the ball at hard, uh, is being able to lift it to the pull side. And he's doing all of that right now. And it's, uh, yeah, if, it, if he gets his strikeout rate down to 22%, then that does seem like he stamped his all-star uh, uh you know, candidacy just because uh, when he's striking out 22% of the time, that means 78% of his balls are in play or over the fence. And he can do a lot with that kind of percentage when it's down to say 66% and in one third of his bats are going to waste. That's tough to overcome. Even if you do have the physical tools he has, but when you get down to, you know, three quarters uh, of your balls in play, then yeah, that's, he can do a lot with that, with what he's got. Just saying, Yohan Mikata is on a very nice pace for 69 doubles hit in 2019, Jim. Yeah, that would be uh, uh, take that, Earl Webb. <laughs> Fell too short of uh, a nice number. <laughs> uh, now, Friday was a weird night for pitchers as Lucas Gilito uh, had to fight on again, off again monsoons at Yankee Stadium. Probably a good thing. That game got called early because I, I don't know how Rick Renteria would have handled the last three innings of a 9-6 to six ball game. Lucas Giolito was okay, given the circumstances, but it was still not close to a quality performance. But the White Sox did receive good outings from starting pitchers Ivan Nova and Carlos Rodon. Anything that caught your eye, Jim, watching Nova and Rodon uh, that helped them bounce back from their bad starts against Seattle and Tampa? Well, I'll have to defer to you on Nova because I listened to that game. I was doing yard work all day. Uh because I'm blacked out with a yes. So I had to uh, settle for the radio and Ed Farmer and, and DJ. Uh, but when it comes to Rodon, I did watch uh, that start. And there is that, uh, there was that mountain visit with Don Cooper that was pretty fired up. Um, Cause Rodon was, he was throwing strikes, but he just wasn't finishing at bats. The command, the, the control in the sliders. Okay. The command wasn't, um, you know, at bats dragged on unnecessarily long when he, he was in position to finish him off and just couldn't. Uh, and after that Cooper mound visit, it's a little bit of a narrative to say like things turn around, but he did become more efficient. The, the one thing I noticed, you know, looking at his, his pitch breakdown is that third time through and, and when he was getting more efficient, the number of sliders dropped. He was uh, going with his fastball, attacking with the fastball, and then his last inning threw a lot of changeups. And I think ideally that's what he wants to do. And, and and that might be one byproduct of the slider approach is that a lot of foul balls, I think there are 27 foul balls the Yankees uh, fouled off. 
And it, it seems like when you're throwing that many sliders to righties, they might be able to keep it bats alive longer by swinging on top of them, fouling them off, chopping the dirt, you know, just fisting them back into the seats. You know, there might be, it might be more difficult to get swings and misses uh, and, and, and also, um, you know, weak contact in play with that approach, given, you know, how on guard hitters are against that slider. So that might be one weakness of that approach and, and why the changeup might need to be a factor in order to get more efficient innings. But I did like to see that, you know, that he was able to get through six when it looked like four innings was going to be tough. And uh, the changeup and, and fastball really seemed to get him across the finish line. And the health of that shoulder, the fact that he's pitching, he's throwing 110 plus pitches in his last two starts. I, I'm a little wary of that, that mm-hmm. type of workload early in the year. But the fact that he's able to bounce back and he still looks strong in his next start, Jim, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I, you don't want to see him get carried away with that. And ideally, uh, the White Sox rotation has a few, a couple good starts in front of him to where they don't feel like they need to get six innings out of him. But uh, that adds another reason why I think the fastball changeup approach in the later innings was good because I remember with Chris Sale that uh, fastball changeup was. And especially the changeup, like when he was not feeling great or, or working deeper in innings, he used the changeup to try to get cheap outs, tried to uh, get his mechanics on track and, and not overtax, uh, uh, spinning the ball too much. And that seemed to work for him in terms of efficiency and working deep into games. And while Rodon, I think, you know, the slider is always going to be his bread and butter. I think that, yeah, it just asking him to throw 50 sliders a game on a regular basis might be a little bit too much for him and, and maybe counterproductive to a point, depending on what kind of lineup he's facing. And for Ivan Nova, it was just crafty veteran day that Saturday as okay. he and CC Sabathia turned back the clock. Uh, Sabathia looked pretty good for making his first start. The White Sox have had a terrible time against CC Sabathia uh, in his career. Uh, Nova, though, he did a good job locating as far as his sinker and pairing it very well, tunneling it very well with his curveball, inducing a lot uh, of ground balls. Uh, but there was one ground ball in particular that you know just ruined a, a great afternoon as far as a starting pitching front for Ivan Nova, who suffered the loss. And that ground ball was to Yomer Sanchez. So we talked about the good stuff. We have to chat about the bad stuff because there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that are openly questioning now what's the point of Yomer Sanchez being on the team if he's now a defensive liability. And that was a crucial error on Saturday's game in which that that ground ball to Yomer Sanchez with runners on first and second and nobody out should have been a double play. And now with two outs and a runner on third, maybe the White Sox get out of that inning and it's scoreless. I'm not saying the White Sox go on and win that game because they only had one hit on Saturday. Uh, but again, this is another game that Yomer Sanchez makes a crucial error and costs the White Sox an opportunity to win. And then there's Daniel Polka, who's still hitless on the season. So, Jim, what is your opinion on Yomer and Polka? And how long are their leashes at this moment? Well, I guess Polka's easier in a way to uh, talk about just because. I guess you know you wouldn't expect anybody to go over that long except maybe Chris Davis, but when it comes to his approach, his profile, his track record, you could see him being. Yeah, you know, there were flash in the pan ingredients just because his uh, plate discipline was lacking, and you know vulnerable left-handed pitching, and you know he did improve in September. Maybe he was beating up on weaker pitching staffs that and expanded rosters and so forth, and maybe it was a a, a lightning in a bottle for him. I'm with Polka. I'm just not seeing good contact. It's not so much, you know, we talked about before and, and it continues to be a problem. He's not, he, he's swinging, he's making bad contact on pitches in the zone and, and pitches that are hittable. And I, I don't know what you do with that. Um, you know, when you're just rolling over pitches and uh, kind of chopping them up the middle and you know, it's the aggressive swings aren't netting anything. And also he's not really able to poke the ball effectively. Uh, you know, not able to beat the shift uh, when he rolls over pitches. It just goes right to where they're set up for him. So uh, if he's easy to defend and he's not, uh, you know, ripping the ball, there's not a lot for him. And and I kind of wonder, you know, thinking back to Jacob May, when he had his hitless streak and, and a really rough time, I imagine the White Sox don't want to send him down with an 0-4 forever on <laughs> stat line. Uh, I do think there's maybe a human element there to say, like, okay, get something, have something to point to, um, you know, in, in the event that you're not called up and you just have this, you know, awful 
potentially historic. I'll have to look into the the most uh, hitless plate appearances for somebody in an entire season. I, I know what the record is to start and so forth, and, and Chris Davis told everybody about that. But when it comes to the, uh, um, you know, over a season, you know, it's potentially historic. I'll have to look into that. But um, I imagine they just want to have them have something to point to you know if they send them down and they might be testing just how long that can go because i think you know ryan cordell isn't great but he's better than what polka offers and nicky delmonico isn't you know we saw what his weaknesses are but even his weaknesses are better what polka offers so yeah it's it's tough and bad and uh but i would hope at least he gets one hit just so they can maybe make up their minds with sanchez it's just he's failing at the thing he was good at and i don't know what to say about that um and we talked about it before with the accountability thing, like everybody wants to see him cut and just like, you, you can't really cut him right now or, or set him down. He's out of options. And, you know, if this is just an completely uncharacteristic month. Then you've burned uh, potentially your best second baseman still because Rondon is weaknesses. And, you know, Danny Mendick might be somebody to try, but he also might be somebody who's a uh, quadruple A player at best, you know, in a, in a month. So it's tough and it's bad, but if you just, you know, if you, just cut through all of the players who are underperforming and making mistakes, then the roster is going to be cut down to single digits in a month or two. Uh, it's, you know, this is just what following a bad team is like bad players or, or, or under overexposed players or uh, under equipped players being put in bad positions and making bad plays and people getting angry about it and it sucks. And, and it's going to be a challenge to write about it in a way that's entertaining and, uh, just not, uh, you know, uh, you know, pitchforks and torches, but, uh, I think with Sanchez, there's probably a point maybe early May where if he's still doing this, he's not hitting, if he's still making mistakes, then maybe you have to say, okay, you're riding the bench and it's Jose Rondon time. And then if Jose Rondon doesn't perform, then you probably risk at one point sending one of those guys down to Charlotte, seeing if it could sneak him through. And then maybe if Danny Mendick's still playing, call him up and, and make that change. But I think, this early, uh, with that little middle infield depth, burning a guy or risking sending a guy down and, and burning him is uh, not really good. Uh, just nothing's really good right now. There are no good answers. And uh, this is uh, yeah, this, this is more or less why Manny Machado was such a high priority. <laughs> Yep, yep. Now with Polka, uh, Ryan Cordell cannot be called up until April 19th, correct? Yes, yep. Okay. So for those that are suggesting make that switch, you're going to have to wait a few days later this week when the White Sox are on their way to Detroit. Uh, hopefully Daniel Polka gets off the schneid against the Kansas City Royals. It seems that Rick Renteria is in a groove uh, as far as creating lineups, uh, that he has a set lineup against right-handed pitchers and a set lineup against left-handed pitchers. Uh, but I am going to be interested to see and how he divides the playing time in the next couple of games between Jose Rondon and Yomer Sanchez. If Sanchez was just playing the level of defense that we have came to see him play the last two years, I think that would forgive his offensive struggles where we'd be able to chalk it up and say he's not a very good offensive player. The reason he's on the 25-man roster because he's good at defense. But when you're a liability and you're making some crucial errors during crucial parts of the game, uh, that it's just it's very painful, very painful. So hopefully both of them uh, start going on uh, catching the wave of some of the players on the left side of the infield, like Tim Anderson, Yohan Mikata, and then maybe there'll be better days ahead for the Chicago White Sox. Now the next time the White Sox see the Yankees, I'm expecting a better and healthier Yankees team when the Bronx Bombers visit the South Side June 13th to the 16th. So it'll be interesting to see in how that four-game series goes. But the White Sox so far in 2019 are 2-1 against the Yankees, and that feels pretty good. Next, we'll preview the upcoming three-game series against the Kansas City Royals. But a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. This show is sponsored by SeatGeek. The ticket industry hasn't changed in a long time. There are a bunch of big companies who have been around forever but really don't care about making the experience easier for the customer. Well, SeatGeek is a ticket company where the customer comes first. With more than 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store, SeatGeek is focused on making your experience as easy as possible. 
The way it works is that SeatGeek pulls in millions of tickets from all over the web, rates each one on a scale of 1 to 10, and displays them on an interactive seat map. So it's simple to find what you're looking for. The green dots are the good deals. The red dots stay away. Those seats are overpriced. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets. It's by far the easiest way i found to shop for them. In fact, I use SeatGeek to buy tickets for opening day. And with the Royals coming into town Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, SeatGeek has tickets as cheap as $7 for each of those three games. So if you want to catch the White Sox at home this week, definitely go to SeatGeek.com or download the SeatGeek app. And best of all, Sox Machine listeners get $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase. As SeatGeek supports our show, so you guys, if you can go ahead and support them because they support us, that'd be terrific. So remember the promo code. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off on your first purchase on SeatGeek. Now it's time to preview as far as the series against the Kansas City Royals. And like I mentioned earlier in the show, Jim, the Royals swept the Cleveland Indians. And they are now 5-10 and 10 in 2019. They have yet to win a road game, though, as they are 0-3 in 2019. Offensively, they're averaging 4.93 runs per game, so around 5 runs a game. But they're allowing five and a half runs per game, and that's because the Royals have one of the worst bullpens in Major League Baseball. That's kind of weird to say after all these years doing this show, Jim. We're used to saying the Royals have one of the best bullpens in Major League Baseball. Now they have one of the worst. The Royals' bullpen has an ERA of 6.93. That is the third worst in Major League Baseball. The White Sox bullpen, outside of... Kelvin Herrera and Alex Colomay every other day with Nate Jones. Uh, the White Sox don't have that strong of a bullpen. So, Jim, I think this could be one of those series that all hell breaks loose after the sixth inning of games. How do you feel about this series for the White Sox? Yeah, it, it, that's kind of how it goes, um, especially, say, if the White Sox get the same start that they got out of Urban Santana early. Um, you know, with the way Santana threw the ball, and, and basically got pounded for what he left in the zone. And with the way Ronaldo Lopez has been throwing the ball, there could be, you know, one short start leading to a long bullpen. And Heath Fillmeyer, you know, starting, uh, you know, he's not a great bet to go deep either. So if you have these uh, short starts on the first day uh, where you ex- leave the bullpen exposed, then, yeah, it could be messy the rest of the, the outing. But um, I would hope that this start will be when you start to see Reynaldo Lopez throwing the ball better. I guess that's what I'm looking for. Um, you know, just, yeah. And we're having a Lopez Lopez battle on uh, Tuesday, which is kind of fun, but, uh, yeah, just, he's been pretty poor all around with all this stuff. And, uh, he's kind of wasted his margin for error already when it comes to evaluating him. Um, so I think, uh, he's got to pretty much turn around by the end of the month to really feel great about his prospects for the rest of the season being you know somebody who you can count on like in the third spot of the rotation so uh giolito same thing except i think he's a bigger work in progress and knew that entering the season uh especially cold weather big guy mechanics uh he, he's had enough life with his fastball and he's done enough damage with this fastball to feel okay about the the blips but yeah, one of these, I, I would hope between the two of them that one of them is a start that they actually feel proud of. This is going to be a weird weather series on Sunday night. It snowed in Chicago. Monday will be a high of 49 degrees sunny. Tuesday, 70, Jim. Hmm. And Wednesday will be above 60 degrees. So Tuesday and Wednesday, we could see a lot of offense in these three games. And hopefully we'll still see the... Hot swing bats of Tim Anderson and Yohan Makata. Maybe we'll see a couple more home runs from Aloy Jimenez. Uh, but yeah, I think this is going to be a series with a lot of runs. And it'd be nice if the White Sox could win this series and be 7-10 before they go on their road trip to Detroit and Baltimore, uh, which those are very winnable games. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in P.O. Sox later in the show and a reminder we'll be recapping the Royals White Sox series Wednesday night for Sox Machine Live which you can listen at Mixler.com slash Sox Machine but coming up next on the Sox Machine podcast Jim will take you through the White Sox affiliates in this week's minor league report 
All right, minor league report time. Good to be back in the saddle. Dylan Cease threw his second start on Sunday, and he also threw his second start of five scoreless innings. Pitching in the cold rain in Indianapolis, Cease allowed just two hits and a walk while striking out four. He threw just 60 pitches, but you can blame that on the conditions. Zach Collins went 0 for 4 to drag his average down to 207, but he also has an OPS above 1,000 because all six of his hits have gone for extra bases, five homers and a triple. As the White Sox second baseman struggle, it's worth keeping an eye on Danny Mendick. He had a great spring, and he's been steady in the early going, hitting 256 with six walks and six strikeouts over 11 games. The little bit of pop and speed is also there, two homers, two doubles, two for two and stolen bases. Birmingham's offense has been abysmal through the first 10 games, but they might have broken out of their doldrums on Sunday with a 16-hit performance against Tennessee. Luis Gonzalez and Laz Rivera have hiked their averages over 200, and Gavin Sheets doubled his season hit total with a 3-for-5 evening. Blake Rutherford, on the other hand, is still searching for his first multi-hit game, and Mike Rodolfo is striking out in bunches. The pitching has been more respectable, with Jimmy Lambert and Bernardo Flores tossing their first quality starts of the season, this last turn through the rotation. Down in Winston-Salem, the Luis Robert show rested on Sunday. Through nine games, Robert is hitting 475 with a 512 OBP and a 1.025 slugging percentage. He's had eight multi-hit games in one 0-for-5 night, which happened to be the one Keith Law saw, of course. Nick Madrigal dealt with the flu earlier this week, so he's still getting back up to speed, bouncing between second base and DH. He's slashing 303, 333, 394, but the quality of contact is still lagging. Alec Hansen is also being brought back to regular action slowly, pitching three one-inning outings out of the bullpen in the early going. He walked a couple batters his last time out, but he's yet to allow his first hit or run, and he struck out five. The Kannapolis Intimidators are striking out a ton, averaging nearly 11 a game in the early going. That's to be expected with the fairly young and or inexperienced lineup the Intimidators are running out there. While you'd like to see Bryce Bush do better than 4 for 33 with zero walks and 14 strikeouts, it is an aggressive assignment. Steele Walker and Lennon Sosa are faring better, both are hitting over 300, and Walker's got six extra base hits in nine games as well. Connor Pilkington has been the Intimidator's most impressive starter early, allowing just a run on four hits and two walks over 11 and two-thirds innings, striking out 14. Given that he's a third-round pick out of Mississippi State, he should be overmatching low-A teams, but he wasn't all that impressive in his pro debut, so it's a welcome development that he's coming out firing. That's it for this week's Meyer League Report, and now we'll answer your questions in P.O. Socks. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, liking our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and of course, helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. As I rejoin the show with Jim to answer your guys' questions this week, And the first question we have in the mailbag, Jim, comes from Jason. And Jason is asking, why is Yomer Sanchez the best option the White Sox have? Everybody knows he's a utility player at best, yet they are still starting him. Nobody better in the organization? Free agency? Why is this team not actively trying to get better at this position this season. <laughs> that was basically the entire off season, wasn't it? Like uh, <laughs> when, when you were talking about Manny Machado, and I know that some people got sick and tired of hearing us belabor the point, but this is, you know, this is, I think is an extreme case. I don't think anybody thought Sanchez would play this poorly, but it's doing a very good, you know, Sanchez's struggles are doing a very good job of belaboring the point for us that this was the risk of not improving in the off season was, Sticking with one guy who's adequate, you know, who you think might be adequate for a spot, but if adequate is the best, you know, I, I guess the best hope for him, then there's a whole lot of room below him to where uh, he is not adequate. Uh, that's That's been the problem with the White Sox roster construction over, you know, and, and why they rebuilt is because 
when you have to hope for average out of some positions, there's a lot of below average that you can realistically happen that sinks the team. And I think this is a case where, you know, running Sanchez out there and not trying to improve on the position or not making a credible attempt to improve uh, is just ill-advised. And, and with this particular offseason, they had a chance to, you know, bring in Manny Machado and have Makata stick at second and hope that he improved there. But I think, you know, you know, when you have Machado and he's basically like a Herman Miller Eames chair for your living room and you feel great, it's like a centerpiece piece of furniture that you'll hand down to generations and feel great about it. And, you know, Sanchez is kind of like a beanbag chair. <laughs> In, in comparison to where, uh, you know, you, you sh they should have grown out of it and it's something you might have around and occasionally you might admit that it's pretty comfortable and, and serves a purpose for kids or something. But when it comes to you know, having a, a thing you're trying to build around, you really want to go for the best when it's available to you and reasonably uh, priced and, and you worry about exactly how you're going to pay for it later, uh, years down the line. You know, if you're worried about what, what the budget's going to be like in year eight, you're asking the wrong question. Yeah, that, that's really just the whole point of the entire offseason, why we're griping about Like, Polka's 0-4 in right field is why we thought Bryce Harper would be better, just because Bryce Harper is so much room to disappoint and still be good. Manny Pachano has so much room to disappoint and still be good. When Sanchez disappoints, you're seeing it. It's awful. <laughs> it's tough to watch, and there's just nothing there. So uh, that's really the lesson, and... Uh, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I really don't want to talk about Machado too much longer because I know it gets tiresome, but this is really why. You want to talk about Fernando Tatis Jr. and his five home runs? Yeah, not really. Okay. <laughs> Jason, thank you so much for your question. Uh, our next question comes from Gukas Liagito. And Gukas is asking, Jim, how long do you think the White Sox go before deciding that Dylan Cease is the best choice for a fifth starter, skipping him when possible to limit his innings and giving him the balance of this lost season to prepare for 2020. Well, I think if he's pitching the way he's pitching and right now two strong starts, five scoreless outings apiece, you know, he's still got to get up to six innings. He's still got to get to 90 pitches, 100 pitches. Um, you know, if he's able to, you know, if, if AAA hitters pose no challenge, I could say, I could see him being like a realistic promotion by like, say, late May, early June to where you've you've got him past any potential dead arm period. Uh, the league has gotten a look at him and they still haven't figured him out. You're not they're not setting up for failure at the major league level. There's just, you know, every possible normal built in uh, speed bump he might hit. He's not hitting. And so now is the time to challenge him. I think that would come like late May, early June. Uh, the question is whether. Uh, I think two questions. One is that, you know, there was talk, uh, I think Scott Merkin wrote about it, uh, where they were trying to discuss a contract with him or maybe not trying to get him to sign, but at least discussing the kind of early pre-first day of service time contract that Eloy Jimenez signed. Uh, I don't think it's that good of an idea for a pitcher, but, you know, the fact that they brought it up makes me wonder whether they're going to use that as uh something to delay his arrival, you know, the way that they did with Jimenez, um, you know, not letting him to get to the majors until he signs it, basically. Um, that, that made me worry a bit that that's going to artificially affect his timeline. I also wonder if Kopech's Tommy John surgery and the fact that, you know, having the surgery makes him lose a year of service time without throwing a pitch. Uh, I wonder if that scares him a little bit. I don't think it should just because Cease has already had one Tommy John surgery. And if he has another one that really throws off his, career and, and, and potential uh, future in a way that it doesn't for Kopech. So it shouldn't be the same, but I just wonder if that scares him a little bit and, and, and you know, aggressively promoting a guy or even aggressively, but I guess responding to a good two months and promoting him accordingly. I wonder if Kopech's, yeah, if they would wait until like say September and, and give Cease every possible opportunity to get hurt or feel a twinge or something like that in Charlotte before making the decision to call him up for good. I wonder if that's going to factor into it. I don't think it should, but that strikes me as a better, uh, more human reason than trying to get him to sign a contract. I hope that's not the case. Well, Cease's next schedule start is this upcoming Friday. It is against Norfolk again. So it'll be Norfolk, the Tide's second opportunity to see Dylan Cease. But, I mean, if he's, if he's limited to five innings every start, Jim, and he's throwing zeros up on the board and runs aloud in every start. I wonder 
do you think that drum beat grows louder and louder and louder within the White Sox organization? Not out. Obviously, with fans and the media, they would be, you know, wanting to see Dylan Cease called up because obviously he's overmatched, or I shouldn't say overmatched. Uh, he's too good for Triple A. Uh, that it's time to see what he does in the majors. Do you think that his, Cease's performance at all would influence the White Sox decision to call him up, or do you think this is strictly just contract and? Uh, you know, the fear of what they dealt with last year. I, I think, you know, should, should Kopech's injury, or I guess should Kopech's year last year be more instructive than his injury and, and the White Sox only responding to performance? I think they were a little slow with Kopech, but he did, Kopech did have that awful, like late May through, you know, or late April through the entirety of May. And it wasn't until June that he finally got back on track and, uh, it, it seemed like they did respond to it and, and they did do, I guess they were conservative with Kopech, but I think they, they may, you can make the argument that they did do what was best for the prospect and the way Kopech threw when he came to the majors, he looked ready. And so I think Cease, you know, right now, I think he's through five scoreless innings yes, uh, in this last start on Sunday because it was a cold rain he was pitching in. And so you don't want to really, you know, have him. it's a long season for him. And if he gets in the majors, it will be the longest season ever for him. Uh, there's no use in having him go six innings in April when it's 40 degrees and raining out. So it, it makes sense to to hold him down there. But I do think that if he gets to pitching six innings with regularity, then it'll be harder for the White Sox to justify to themselves to keep him down. Um, I, I think that'll be the thing. If he can regularly pitch 95 plus pitches uh, and, and show no signs of diminishing effectiveness, then... It's going to be the same thing with Kopech, same conversation without the big personal um, off-field issue that Kopech had to deal with um, you know, around May last year. Gukas, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Jared. And Jared is asking, Jim, Birmingham has the main crop of young players for the rebuild. Is it a major concern that Birmingham has been having a slow start and most of these prospects are hitting below 200? Not yet. Uh, you know, first two weeks, very small sample size, new level. And, and also the South's been having some cold and bad weather. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if just nobody's really great at getting on track right now. And, and uh, like a guy like Luis Gonzalez, like I could see Laz Rivera struggling at double A just because he gets by and swinging at everything. And that's an approach that could be exposed if he's not an elite contact hitter or, or doesn't do the most with his contact the way somebody like Tim Anderson did. Tim Anderson was a very aggressive prospect going up the chain, but he was just too good with his bat, with his, with his barrel control uh, going up the ladder to where it affected him. I think Rivero isn't quite at that level, so I could see him hitting wall. I could see Gavin Sheets having trouble just because he didn't hit for power at Winston-Salem and He's not walking, he's not striking out, he's not really walking, and just the contact isn't great. I could see him having an issue. I could see Blake Rutherford having a weak contact issue. But somebody like Luis Gonzalez, um, who I'm higher on, uh, Mike Rodolfo, uh, the contact for them is lacking right now. I think uh, uh, they're coming around, uh, especially Gonzalez has had a couple good games in a row. Um, you know, I would say by the end of April, if, if everybody's hitting that poorly, then yeah, I think there's something in the water there, and I would be concern but i think by the end of april i wouldn't be surprised if like the riveras and sheets are struggling at double a but i would expect somebody like gonzalez and adolfo to turn the corner uh, and i think with regular reps without these cold rainouts that they've been having and, and and just ugly weather i think we should start seeing some normalcy in about uh two weeks if not less Speaking of strikeout rates, Mike Rodolfo is at 42%. So that's yeah. the that's the one stat. I know it's small sample size, but that's the one stat that I'm going to be paying attention to. Because if Adolfo struggles, I mean, everybody else, in my opinion, is trade bait. Not guys that I'm expecting to be on a future White Sox 25-man roster. Um, but we'll see how it goes at the end of April. Yeah, And also, I think with, you know, with him coming back from the surgery... Uh, given that he did miss the last couple uh, months at Winston-Salem and then he goes up a level, that might be a bit aggressive when mm, it comes to getting back in regular game rhythm. And it wouldn't surprise me if he had to take a step back. But I, I think um, he's overcome bad chunks of season before and learned in season. And I think they're trusting that. But I, I think if they need to, there's room in the Winston-Salem outfield to send him back down and get him 
uh, back up to game speed at a level he's already hit well at and then let him try Birmingham again. I think that's entirely possible. And maybe, say, if Basabe comes back, that's maybe one way they can go without having to expose Basabe to Charlotte when he's coming off a hand injury. Will be good for Gonzalez and Rutherford to start hitting. Because uh, as you mentioned, Basabe, there's also somebody Winston-Salem that's ready for Birmingham right now. I don't know who uh, you're talking about. <laughs> of course you don't. And great questions from everybody this week in P.O. Sox. If you have a question for us in the future or a topic that you'd like us to tackle, again, you can submit those for P.O. Sox, and you can do so by following us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. You can help support the site and the show by going to patreon.com slash Sox Machine. We have several different tiers that you can sign up for, and what you get is additional content from us every single week with the podcast, with writing, you get an ad-free show as well. You get an opportunity to ask questions to the guests, and you get an opportunity to ask additional questions in P.O. Sox. So if you like our work and you would like to get more of it and help support us, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up. Jim, we still have pint glasses, right? Yes. And, uh, yep, the, the stipulations or the rules or whatever <laughs> the uh, are on the page and all the boring stuff is there. So, but, yes, have a... Uh, still a heaping helping of red and black. Awesome. So if you would like a Sox Machine pint glass or any type of Sox Machine swag, again, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up and help support the show. And that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.